Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Hoder. Hoder. Buddy. I know you're looking for something to do down there beneath the cave, but I want to make sure you know. Hold on. <laughs> Binge mode contains adult content. If you're okay with what you see on Game of Thrones, you'll be okay with binge mode. Hold on. And now, binge mode. I assume you know why I'm here. I will after you tell me. It's about the Lord Commander. The former Lord Commander. Does he have to be? What are you asking? Do you know of any magic that could help him? Bring him back. Hello, and welcome to Binge Mode. Woo! I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, yes. now that he's finished chatting with Melisandre about the pricing options for her full body rinses Ooh. and her hairstyle consultations. It's very relaxing. <laughs> it did. It's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. Hi. Jason, I assume you know why I'm here. I do know why you are here. We are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We're deep diving one at a time. Spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from the show and books from this episode and beyond. So take a deep, shuddering breath because it's time to break down season six, episode two, Home. Jason. Yeah. It's beautiful beneath the sea. But if you stay too long, you'll drown. I hear that. I think it's safe on the King's Road, though. So let's take a quick trip down that path of plot points, offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in this second installment, famously known as the episode where John comes back to life. Other stuff happens, too, though. Let's run through it. In the Three-Eyed Raven's cave, Bran is at Winterfell, but it's not his home. Three-Eyed Raven has taken him back to a time when Eddard Stark was just a boy. Ned is teaching his younger brother, Benjen, how to handle a sword and shield. Then Bran's aunt, Lyanna, rides into the yard. She calls Hodor over. Willis, come here. She says, Bran hears Hodor speak a word that isn't his name for the first time ever. My goodness. And it turns out Hodor is in some way related to old Nan. Meanwhile, back in the real world. Mira's spirits are a shipwreck. Her brother made her come here to help a boy she doesn't know, and now her brother's dead, and she's stuck in this cave, and it stinks, and there's nothing to eat. Leaf, child of the forest, lifts her spirits. Meanwhile, in Winterfell, Ramsay, chill as always, suggests yes. to Roose, hey, maybe we should storm Castle Black and take out Jon Snow. Roose, and this is rich. <laughs> Thinks this is a step too far. That's too crazy, guys. Roos, famously ruled by his moral compass. <laughs> Just can't can't hear this. Won't have it. Just then. By God, that's the putative trueborn heir of Winterfell and the Dreadforts music! <laughs> Walda and Roos. Congratulations. Have had a baby boy. This is, it turns out, bad news for literally everyone. Ramsey kills his father, Roos, as his new ally, Lord Karstark. Baby Karstark here, yeah. young Karstark, looks on, and then in a move that, even by Ramsay's typical standards, is utterly disgusting and disgraceful, feeds Walda and her baby to the hounds. Down at King's Landing, the King's Landing bragger, who you might remember from... Uh, Dick Wagon? Dick wagon in front of Queen Cersei during her Walk of Atonement is bragging about the wagon, uh, you know, just at some local pub in King's Landing. Later on, as he's making water against a pillar, Sir Franken of the Mountain crushes Dick Wagger's head against the wall. King Tommen has posted what appears to be 30 or so men at Cersei's door to ensure that she stays in the Red Keep, which sucks because it's Marcella's funeral today. King Tommen Oy. having a tough time. He is weak. And more 
than just being weak. He understands that he's weak and he knows that everybody thinks he's weak. Uh, Jamie gets to play father here for a moment. High Sparrow enters the Sept and he and Jamie spar about stuff. The Kingslayer points out, hey, I killed a king among other notorious murders. What makes you think that I won't chop your head off right now? The High Sparrow sees that bluff and raises him about a dozen armed fanatics and Jamie backs down. Tommen later apologizes to Cersei for not letting her go to the funeral. Mm. Cersei famously always receptive to right. an apology. <laughs> yeah. It's usually all it takes. It's like, oh, that's oh, fine. We're good. We're yeah. good. In Marine, Tyrion, Varys, Masandi, Grey Worm, debating what to do about the gathering threat from Yunkai and Astapor and the loss of Danny's fleet. Oh, and one more thing. The dragons won't eat. They're starving small, themselves in small protest. Detail. Give me my cell phone back, mom, or else. Tyrion has a plan. Let's get them to eat, guys. What makes you such an expert? They all want to know. I drink and I know things, Tyrion Class. says. Just realized I'm wearing that shirt yeah, so right good. now <laughs> as we record. How embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Binge mode is so in my head. I must have subconsciously selected it this morning, knowing we were doing this episode. My goodness, how alarming. Tyrion goes down to the catacombs to unchain the dragons. Crucially, they do not roast him yes. alive which is a great sign, and we are going to be discussing what that might mean. Dun, dun, dun. In depth later on. Over in Bravos. Guess what? The waif is still fucking with blind-ass Arya. <laughs> Jockin comes to her, says, hey, how about food? How about shelter? How about your eyes back? All you got to do is say, I don't want to do this anymore. Arya refuses. All that sounds pretty good. Got to be honest. Listen, food, shelter, and eyesight. <laughs> I think those are important. High on the list <laughs> yes. of the good things in life. Heading north to Castle Black, Brienne asks Sansa what it was like being married to Ramsay. This is obviously a very painful discussion yeah. point, but it does facilitate some of their bonding. And right after that, Sansa goes over to have a chat with Theon, who naturally is a half-mad mess of guilt and shame and fear. Theon tells Sansa that he is going home. He's making for the sea and heading to Pike rather than go to Castle Black and face Jon Snow. On Pike, the Iron Islands, Yara reports the loss of Deepwood Mott to Balon Greyjoy, her father. Balon wants to wage more war on land. Yara wants to keep it wet as their fathers did and their fathers before them. We are ironborn. We don't do shit on the land. What are you doing? Euron Greyjoy arrives in our lives at long last and greets his brother by throwing Balon off the rope bridge. Later, Aaron Dampere mentions something about needing to pick a new leader, therefore needing to do a king's moot. Love a king's moot. Everybody loves a king's moot. <laughs> Who doesn't love a king's moot? At Castle Black. Time's up for Davos and Jon Snow's other supporters. You know that Thorne is full of shit completely and fully because he promises... <laughs> trying to get them to just open the door and lay down their arms by promising to release ghosts beyond the wall. That's absolute bullshit. Okay, dude. Yeah. You don't fucking bring ghosts <laughs> into this, absolute motherfucker. Bullshit. Come on. Thorn's men hammer at the door. Davos draws Longclaw. Everyone arms up. Ghost growls Arr. spectacularly ready for a fight. And then... Is that one one's music? <laughs> it is the music of crushing men against walls. <laughs> so therapeutic. Who needs whale noises at night yeah. when you have that? Crisis averted. Thorn and his conspirators in custody. Tormund and the wildlings back at Castle Black. Davos makes his next and most crucial move. Knocks on Mel's door and asks her, Hey, ever thought about giving resurrection a try? <laughs> Melisandre, after getting a classic Davos pep talk, yeah. washes the Lord Commander's body, says a prayer. She snips a few of those lustrous locks and a few scraggly pieces of beard and burns them. Washes John's hair, lays her hands on his torso, prays. Nothing's happening. It's looking mighty bleak. But then, Ghost opens his eyes. And after a short time, so does Jon Snow. Woo! Taking a deep, restorative breath as the <gasps> life courses through him. Jon Snow, reborn anew. Mal? Yeah. Bran isn't going to stay here forever. I hope not. And out there, 
He needs Mira and us. Mm. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is teamwork. What is a team? It's a group of people, each with a role, cooperate in order to fulfill that goal. No one member of that team can achieve that goal on their own. What's the difference between a team and an alliance? Well, an alliance are people that are similarly working towards a goal, but they can quit the alliance at any time. It's, these are two people who have broadly aligned interests that can separate at any time. Teams don't have that option. If you're on a team, you're on a team, and that's it. So let's talk about Davos, Melisandre, and the Jon Snow loyalists. You know, at Castle Black, Jon is dead. The question of the day is, and only Davos understands that this is the question. Right. Are we going to extra innings here? <laughs> Free baseball. Is this going to happen? Davos is leading a scruffy collection of Night's Watch brothers who would otherwise have no idea what to do outside of, I don't know, I guess we try and kill Thorn and stuff and probably <laughs> die in the process. That sounds like a plan. Uh, Davos is, think of him as like the veteran on the team. He's seen battles on land and sea, this despite feeling compelled to apologize for his skills as a swordsman. Pro so always so modest. It, well, I mean, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that his fingers are fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> he's served as hand of a king. He's ran blockades as a smuggler. He's seen shit and he's got a plan. His plan is, one, buy time. Ask for the mutton. You know, say, yeah, we got to think this over. And number two, send someone to go contact the wildlings. How do they get out of that room? Don't think about that right now. You need a deep bench. That's she knows right. you need a deep bench. That's right. Number three, take back the castle. Great idea. Number four, let's see what our team X factor, i.e. our late inning closer, Melisandre, has left in the tank. Throw on heat. She has high heat, but she can be a little wild sometimes. Case and then, of the yips. That's right. And then number five, profit? I don't know. Let's just see what happens. Thorne comes to the door. He says, it's time, Sir Davos. Open the door and the men inside can rejoin their brothers in peace. We'll even set the wolf free north of the wall where it belongs. Fucking liar. Fucking lies. You Are you kidding? Come on. You're not going to. Give me a fucking break. Nobody needs die here tonight. And Davos to the loyalists says, I've never been much of a fighter. Apologies for what you're about to see. An unsheathed long claw in extremely dope fashion. So good. And then the rest of the team arrives. This teamwork at its best. 1-1, one, one, Tormund, the wildlings, help subdue the conspirators. And what a testament to John's ability as a leader, his, his uh, innate talent and charisma as a leader that these men, who should by all logic and custom be his sworn en enemies, come to fight for him. And he's dead. Incredible. As the mutiny showed, an oath doesn't always make you a true team. Genuine respect and affection does, and that's what Tormund feels for John. And remember, it wasn't that long ago they were trying to kill each other. We understand now that they have a shared respect that only they understand. Right. You know, it's very—trying to kill each other is a very intimate thing. And right. if you can come through that— uh, the bond of friendship is like almost, it's just unbreakable. There's like no higher <clears throat> praise you could get from Tormund yes. than him basically saying, you didn't go down easy. It's just incredible. So sometimes achieving something that is seemingly impossible, you know, just like uh, bridging the gap between life and death, means aligning with people you hate. Teams aren't always made up of best pals. You know, people like this team, John, is like eight people and eight cabs. It's a lot deeper though yes. than genuine affection like i it actually in some ways these things have nothing to do with each other but it makes me think back to cat trying to explain marriage right. to rob you know and explaining what ultimately forged between her and ned right. it was stronger it lasted longer going through real shit with people actually matters a lot more than just saying our banners are sworn to each it's other it's just like binge mode <laughs> So sometimes, the, you know, the most potent teams are forged by reluctant allies who come together in times of intense, desperate need. And this is Davos and Melisandre. Davos goes to see Mel, who I, we can't say this enough, who he hates. Despises her. Despises. He doesn't even know that she burned Shireen yet. And he, he absolutely hates her, but he needs her. So he goes to see her. And he says, I assume you know why I'm here, because Melisandre loves to do that uh, little soothsaying trick. And she says... 
I will after you tell me. And in very bitter fashion, you know, she has lost all confidence in herself. And it's also a very funny moment for someone who's supposed to know the future. It's a self-aware moment right. from Melisandre. Um, and he says it's about the Lord Commander. The former Lord Commander, she says, does he have to be? And she looks at him like, hmm, what are you asking? And he says, do you know of any magic that could help him bring him back? If you want to help him, leave him be. And these are the words of someone who's absolutely given up. Completely and totally. So, I mean, she everything that she took as gospel truth has turned out to be false. And she is shattered. Just a ship drifting without oars like in a storm. And he says, can it be done? And Melisandre thinks about it. And, you know, you know, actually, yeah, I saw that happen once. And, yeah, and there are some with this power, she says. And Davos is like, how? I don't know. Have you seen it done? And she says, I met a man who came back from the dead, but the priest who did it, it shouldn't have been possible. And this is an interesting tidbit because Melisandre really doesn't have or previously did not have much respect for Thoris of Mir as a priest of R'hllor. He was more interested in, in being a party boy. Um, and Davos is like, you know, but it could be now. And Melisandre says, says, you know, not for me, not for you. I, I saw you drink poison that should have killed you. I saw you give birth to a demon made of shadows and hear Davos in full coach mode. And she says, everything I believe, the great victory I saw in the flames, all of it was a lie. And she's just weeping now. You were right all along. The Lord never spoke to me. And now Davos is just like throws the clipboard down. This is not about plays anymore. Fuck them then. Fuck all of them. I'm not a devout man, obviously. Seven gods, drowned gods, tree gods, it's all the same. I'm not asking the Lord of Light for help. I'm asking the woman who showed me that miracles exist. I never had this gift, she says. Have you ever tried? And this is like, this has to be painful for Davos to ask, for to say miracles, to refer to uh, a woman birthing a smoke assassin baby out of her vagine to kill... <laughs> the brother of the man that he serves a miracle. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do in these moments. And you cut to, to Mel. She's going to try it. Wash the body. Davos and Ed and Tormund are here. How has John not rotted yet? You may be asking. We're kind of asking. Hey, it's as cold, right? It's only been, what, eight hours? I guess they're trying to say, like, it was dawn. Davos found him and all this unfurled in, like, less than two hours. They gave, Thorn gave them the day, right? Yeah, that's the thing. That's tough. That's a little tough there. <laughs> anyway, she, you know, she cuts the hair, chants a few words in Valerian, puts the hair in the fire. Smoke? Is that smoke? I'd say is it's the, smoke. Is the water she washes his hair with salty, perhaps? Are someone's tears? Oh, we'll salty? get to this later. Ghost is on the floor. She cuts the hair from his beard, too. Burns I'm going to need well. to stop you for a second. Yeah. To just talk about do a ghosts little solo here about ghosts. For two hours. <laughs> Seriously, just want to say that the direwolves are among the coolest parts of the show. And this scene, it's like when Summer was sitting by Bran's side when Bran woke up in season one. The connection yeah. that these characters have with their wolves, the fact that Ghost knows who to trust just based on being able to innately sense that these people I are there that. for John. I love that. In the battle moment earlier in the episode is incredible. He's so rearing to go. He's so ready for a fight. And then this, this gentler, softer side of the animal and what that bond means. Hope has left him. And then he, before any person, before anyone or anything else, can sense that John is returning to this mortal plane. It's beautiful. Carry on. <laughs> so yeah, as Mallory so eloquently talked about for two hours, if we let her, camera pans over to John, pans back to Ghost. Ghost's eyes open and he makes a sound that's half a whimper, half a my master is home. And he sits up, lifts his head, and then John takes a breath. Go team! It's incredible. I mean, this is what people waited. Yeah. Months and months and months for for book readers, years, years, years to have confirmation years. that this was going to happen. Years. What about Bran? What about the little guy? Bran, Mira, the Three-Eyed Raven, Leaf, Hoder, Summer. Other people are forging teams as well. Bran, remember, is an immensely powerful skin changer and green seer. Perhaps the most powerful warg. That there is. Yeah. Like, period. Perhaps ever. Full we don't stop. know. Yeah. Right. And yet, 
because of his physical limitations, he could not have gotten to this point, to this cave. He would probably have died if not for Hodor. No one would have reached this cave without Jojen, without Mira, her expert pathfinder. She's a huntress. She kept them fed on their journey. She kept them safe. Osha, what she did before she left. Bran, despite being a source of immense power, has needed help. And one of the cool things about Mira's character is that she taught everyone in this team and us as viewers that it's okay. It's okay to need help and that some people are worth helping. And Bran is obviously one of those people. Though Mira is struggling with that idea a little bit right now, which is interesting. Tree team? Team tree? Team tree, I think. Team tree? Currently in training. And this is tough for Mira because she is disgruntled. She's depressed. She's used to being outdoors, active, facilitating, making things happen. And she's stuck right now underground with, and this is an uncharitable assessment, but these are the facts, (laughs) a cripple, a simple man who only speaks Not a great conversationalist. (laughs) Not, Not the best at that. And an old... Man who literally has a tree growing out of his ass, right? (laughs) Just like literally has tree roots growing through his body. This is wearing on her. And then Leaf, a child of the forest, recast in concerning fashion, says to Mira, Brandon Stark needs you. And Mira says, for what? I sit in there and watch him have visions and nothing ever happens. God, I'm so whiny. Yeah, I know. Like what? this was, Come on. Her you, brother died like yeah, a month okay, ago. Yeah, okay, but like also this is kind of what you knew you were opting right. into. Leaf says he isn't going to stay in there forever and out there, there being the right. world, he needs you. This is an effective pep talk. And then meanwhile, what is happening in there and in, in the cave under the weirwood where Mira doesn't want to be? Well, Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven are finding out that they're not totally working off the same playbook right right now either. When Bran goes back in time to witness this scene in the Winterfell yard, seeing Ned training Benjen, keep your shield up or I'll ring your head like a bell. These are the same exact words that we previously heard John say to Ollie in season five. Chilling. Exact uh, gesture, too, where he kind of cups the back of the young man's head. It's wonderful. Extremely cool and chilling. And we had talked about that at the time. Obviously worth noting the book in there. And he is seeing Hodor, Willis, learning of Hodor's true identity, wow. learning that he could speak. He sees Liana. There's so much happening here. A young Roderick. Right. Imagine what this is like for Bran, who has been away from his family, robbed of the connections to the people that he knows and loves to get just this taste. Just that taste. They're not necessarily in the forms that he knows, but it's something. It's some line to the world and the people who he loves. And to be pulled out of that is, it just fills Bran with lament. And he says, the Three-Eyed Raven says to him, it's time to go. This is when they're still in the vision and Bran says, please, a little longer. Three-Eyed Raven pulls him out. Bran's eyes, you know, they had been in that milky state and they returned to normal. He says, you finally show me something I care about, and then you drag me away. And the Three-Eyed Raven says, he's ready for this. He's ready for that concern. He says, it's beautiful beneath the sea, but if you stay too long, you'll drown. Now, Bran says, I wasn't drowning. I was home. But this is a clear, clear warning. Think of the toxic pull that having access to something like that would have over you. We'll see this play out in the ensuing episodes. Hoder, of course, is also on Brand's team. But as we get these first glimpses into what Hoder's life was like before, we have to start asking ourselves, is that his choice? Yeah. Down at King's Landing, Team Lannister, not doing so great. Tommen is really struggling in part because he understands that he's not ready to contribute to the team in the way that he needs to. And he knows that everybody thinks that. Uh, he signed a big contract, but he can't crack the Mendoza line, Mal. Just going to say this. Yeah. Tough season for Tommen. Very, very <laughs> Rewatching tough. Rewatching it, one of my main takeaways is <laughs> very tough season for Tommen. Very tough. He says to Jamie at the Sept, when the Faith Militants seized her, meaning Cersei, and Marjorie, what did I do? When they paraded her through the streets like a whore, what did I do? And Jamie says, you know, trying to bolster him. We all fail sometimes. 
and Tommen here showing that he has a firm grasp of just how much he's fucking up. The king is supposed to be the protector of the realm. If I can't protect my own wife or mother, what good am I? Great question. Important question. So after keeping his mother from her daughter's funeral, Tommen goes to visit her on Jamie's orders, try to build the team back up, finds Cersei just kind of pensively looking out the window, gripping Marcella's necklace, looking out the window, which uh, is some eerie foreshadowing also. So many window yes. moments for Tommen and Cersei and what in is, this season. And what does Cersei want to know? Did they put her in the red gown or the gold? Ah, gold. Good, that was always her color. Gold will be their shrouds. Remember the prophecy. Oh, boy. So many Easter eggs about both the past and the future in this moment and the weight of those things and how they just are crushing Cersei. I'm sorry for keeping you here, Tom says. I shouldn't have, but I was, you know, I I didn't want to lose you again. Uh, He's just so desperate to protect his mother. This is the only way he can think to do it. So she says, I understand. I'm glad to see you. But she says it in an extremely cold way, a just a very detached way. Right. And Thomas says, I know I should have come sooner. I wanted to. I was wrong. And so she says, it's all right. And she's saying this with absolutely no warmth in her voice. No, it isn't. I, I should have executed all of them. I should have pulled down the sept onto the high sparrow's head. Oh, my God. <laughs> before, I, before I let them do that to you, as you would have for me. Oh, you raised me to be strong. And I wasn't, but I want to be. Help me. And she says always in the embrace. Spoiler alert. I mean, it's just glaring now looking back at it. Um, I should have pulled down the sept onto the high sparrow's head before I let them do that to you as you would have done for me. She will. She will do this for him. (laughs) And gazing out at that wreckage, again, spoiler, Tommen must understand that that is what she did. And is that perhaps part of the reason he jumps out of the window? The guilt of having caused this? Perhaps. Their team is built on two pillars. One is just mother-child love. And the other one is a virulent hate and thirst for vengeance. And these two things amplify each other and create a weird feedback loop that is utterly toxic. And, of course, Jamie is also a very important member of that team. But one of the complications there is that he can't really uh, fully acknowledge his role. Right. We start to see some of this manifest in an interaction that Jamie has with the High Sparrow after that chat that Jamie had with Tommen when he dismisses Tommen. Jamie stays in the Sept and the High Sparrow enters. And a really fascinating exchange yeah, ensues. incredible exchange. Jamie is not used to the threats that he makes, either, you know, veiled or otherwise, being resisted in really any fashion. at all. You know, he's lived basically his entire life knowing deep in his bones that he is a better fighter than anyone who would challenge him. And if that failed, if his physical skills failed him, which they rarely did, he could always basically fall back on the safety net of his family, his father, Tywin Lannister, the richest man on earth. All of that, the physical skills, the family name, Tywin's looming shadow, it's all gone. And all Jamie has now is this lonely bluster to meet the challenge of an old unarmed man. But the High Sparrow has a very powerful team of his own, his supporters. He fears his faith his gods more than any man. And he states this explicitly. Jamie's getting right down to it. Right. Listen, dude, you imprisoned and humiliated my sister. Let's talk about why we're really here. Let's talk about why we're having this conversation in the first place. And the high sparrow says, your sister sought the gods' mercy. Right. Toned for her sins. And then to regain the upper hand, Jamie unfurls his CV. What about what I did? Right. Stabbed the king in the back. Check. Killed my cousin. Check, though, dude, like, you don't need to be <laughs> know, right? shouting about it. Yeah, that don't one. be admitting crimes that no one knew about. <laughs> like, like the, the, is... the people who were in Rob's camp, like, kind of knew, and everyone <laughs> yeah. else, like, sort of didn't. So yeah, maybe yeah, just yeah. keep that one a little tighter to the vest. And then Jamie grasps his sword. He bears a few inches of steel. And once that kind of show, that right. threat of what was about to occur, m- might probably would have been enough. But Jamie's just one dude. And he's not at full strength. And again, the High Sparrow knows that he has reinforcements. He has a team behind him. 
Go on then, he says. I deserve it. We all do. We are weak, vain creatures. We live only by the mother's mercy. And at that moment, the members of the faith militant, they're, they're just popping in, right. popping in around the sept, appearing, apparating. And Jamie notes that, hey, you know, they're not close enough. Right. I can kill you before these guys can save you. And the high spiral, again, is like, you're kind of missing. Right. You're missing point. it completely. You're just missing the point. You, you, a person who is so attached to the pleasures of this world, don't see that it's not about me being alive right now. It's right. about what I've positioned myself for and whatever comes next. And he says, yeah, they'd never reach me before you struck. And Jamie says, I fought against worse odds. Certainly, you know, back when he had two hands, he he might have had the courage to follow through right. on these threats here. And then the high spiral goes on to basically define teamwork for Jamie, the, the part of the reason why he's not afraid right now. He says, no doubt many of us would fall, but who are we? Hmm? We have no names, no family. Every one of us is poor and powerless, and yet together we can overthrow an empire. Heavy echoes of what he recently said to Olena. You are the few. We are the many. Right. This is a real strength in numbers. The courage and the conviction that he has from knowing that he has a full army of supporters behind him. Who does Jamie have? He barely has Cersei yeah, anymore. Barely. High Sparrow is not afraid because he knows that he's on a stronger team. Team Lannister is in shambles. Up at Winterfell. Ramsay Bolton, young Car Stark and Daddy Roos. You know, the Bolton method of team building is to basically stab your allies one by one in the back or front occasionally until the Bolton is the last person alive in the room, at which point they win. That's not a strategy that's built for the long haul, although it can be quite effective in small measured doses. Little wonder then that the Boltons have had a lot of success, tons of success in sacking, murdering, and flaying people, and very little in forging lasting alliances, lasting teams. Still, Ramsay and Lord Karstark have a use for each other, and that's why they've teamed up. They're young rookies on the come up, essentially, which leaves Roos, whose generation has wrought nothing upon this realm but war and death all by himself. When Ramsay mentions his plan to attack Castle Black, Roos, of all people, Roos, tries to lecture his son on the importance of teamwork. I, can't, I literally can't I, get over this. Fucking, it's <laughs> it's fucking incredible. Murder the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch? You'd unite every house in the North against us. Dude! What the fuck did you do with the Red Wedding? It's, what are you talking about? This is the same thing as when he said to, to Littlefinger, like, yeah. why, why are you turning on the Lannister? I don't understand. They raised you to a right. great, great man in the realm, and now you're doing that. Like, what? You're just describing your own... Actions, what a yeah. projector. Unbelievable. And Ramsey has an answer. We don't need every house in the north. The Umbers, the Manderleys, and the Karstock command more soldiers than all the houses combined. With their support, none could challenge us. And Karstark steps up and says, The Starks lost my house the day King Rob cut off my father's head. It's time for new blood in the north. Roos, not really understanding the threat of that. Uh, you are part of that old blood, Roos. And he says, if you acquire a reputation as a mad dog, you'll be treated as a mad dog, taken out back and slaughtered for pig feed. This from the man, again, who murdered his liege lord, his wife, his mother, and his countrymen at a wedding at a behest of southern lords, then with incredible alacrity turned on those southern lords by marrying his son to Sansa Stark, whose family he fucking murdered. Can't change your game plan this many times or you lose the locker room, Roos. What are you doing? Come on, Roos. So sure enough, Master Wolken appears to announce the joyous news that Lady Walda has given birth to a son. Red-cheeked. Red-cheeked, my lord. <laughs> Ramsay proves the truth of his father's words in that moment. He likes being the star. He doesn't want any kind of competition. He wants to be the solo gunner on this squad. He doesn't want this kind of competition, so he takes out his brother and Walda. Ramsey, as we have seen, not a team sport guy, and this will cost him. And then, of course, there's a very newly forming team. Sansa, Brienne, Pod, Theon, what role does he play? Well, Brienne is asking Sansa what happened at Winterfell, right. and Sansa can't bring herself to say, I should have gone with you when I had the chance, Sansa says to Brienne. It was a difficult choice, my lady, mm. she replies. We've all had to make difficult choices. It's not always clear, and this is important for us and for these characters yeah. to remember, which team is the right team at a given moment. But choosing wrong, 
making the wrong choice extremely costly. And this this makes Sansa's continued, a little bit of a spoiler alert here, allegiance with Littlefinger particularly puzzling, given that part of the reason she chose wrong is because she trusted him. Much more on that throughout the course of this season. Sansa and Theon, meanwhile, they offer an important reminder that choosing wrong once does not have to mean choosing wrong forever. Right. You can always demand right. a trade. Get that you player option. You can always sit out. Opt out. <laughs> and demand better terms. Sansa loathed Theon for what he did, the betrayal yeah. that he brought down on House Stark. But she has forgiven him. It wasn't just the, was all right, a- I'll hold your hand here for a second because I have no choice. She has let him back into her heart, but probably actually in a way that he never was before, right? right? 100% not. Definitely yeah. <laughs> not. Definitely not. And she's come to rely on him, Theon. He betrayed the Starks, but he wants to do whatever is in his power to to, uh, to help right that right. wrong, to undo whatever he can. Even though he doesn't really think he's worthy of forgiveness, he wants to try to restore some of that familial bond. He wants to return to his own family now, even after rejecting Yara's rescue attempt and her olive branch and offer for help. And Theon knows this is important. On teams, you cannot trust only one person. That's right. You have to be in it together. And so he knows that he can't actually be a part of this thing with Sansa because the fact that she is willing to fight for him and she is willing to accept him isn't enough. He's worried about John, and he should be. John will have me killed the moment we step through the gate, he says. I won't let him, Sansa says. I'll tell him the truth about Brandon Rickon. And the truth about the farm boys I killed in their place, Theon asked. The truth about Sir Roderick, who I beheaded. The truth about Rob, who I betrayed. And he's disgusted with himself as he's listing these transgressions. If you take the black, Sansa says, all your crimes are forgiven. And this is the key. I don't want to be forgiven. I can never make amends to your family for the things I've done. They'll keep you safer than I ever could. He's going home. He's basically saying, I don't actually deserve to be on the team. I can't be trusted. I shouldn't be on a team. Yours or anyone else's. We'll see what kind of team situation is awaiting him back home. A bad one. If things are a mess on Pike and the Iron Islands in general, every man or woman for himself, essentially. Balon takes the, and by the way, they need to upgrade the rope bridges at Pike. <laughs> this is like a seat of a great house, guys, and this is just tawdry. Anyway, Balon walks out onto the rope bridge that leads to the inner parts of the castle, and a hooded figure appears before him. Let me pass, you fool. Move aside for your king. Haven't I always, brother? And it's Euron. Uh The long-lost brother who's been traveling the world, going to far-flung places, doing who knows what, gathering who knows what magical items. And Balon says, I thought you'd be rotting under some foreign sea by now. And Euron says, what is dead may never die, has our custom changed while I've been away? Aren't you supposed to repeat the words? This is when Balon says nothing back to him. Right. You can mock the gods without my help. I don't mock the drowned god. I am the drowned god. Chilling moment. Yeah, and this is like gives you a, a window into the possible insanity of Euron. From old town to Carth, when men see my sails, they pray. You're old, brother. You've had your time now. Let another rule. Balon says, I heard you lost your mind during the storm on the Jade Sea. Your men tied you to the mast to keep you from jumping overboard. They did, he says. And when the storm passed, you cut out their tongues. I needed silence. What kind of an ironborn loses his senses during a storm? And here, touching on almost a Breaking Bad moment. I am the storm, brother. The first storm and the last. And you're in my way. Balon draws his blade, manages to draw blood from Euron's cheek, and then Euron pushes him over, and there ends the reign of Balon Greyjoy. That final leech. That final, that final Gendry leech coming into play. Three for three. Way to go, Mel. Yeah. Never doubt you. <laughs> <laughs> Time for new management. Yara, obviously, because Balon has said so, would imagine that she is next. She is the heir. Maybe not, though. I'm going to find out who did this, and I'm going to feed them to the sharks while they live. I swear it by the salt throne. This is what Yara says. At Balon's funeral, the damp hair, Aaron damp hair, a very influential priest of the drowned god, says, the salt throne is not yours, not unless the king's moot chooses you. My father wanted me to rule. What are we doing? We haven't done king's moot in like 3,000 years. She doesn't say this, but that's the, the right. subtext of this. 
Your father does not get to choose. The law is clear. Perhaps you'll win. Perhaps you'll be the first woman in history to rule the Ironborn. And perhaps not. Hey, guys. Just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to Binge Mode. And then there's Tyrion. Yeah. Trying to team up with some dragons. Being a part of a team means making sacrifices. And Tyrion has so rarely gotten to be a part of a team that, of course, when you're excluded, you often spend a lot of time thinking about what being included would be like. These kinds of dynamics are things that he's mauled many times throughout his life. And in this particular moment, when the group in Marine is discussing the problem of the dragons not eating. Big problem. No, it's not good. Dragons got to eat, you know, they're, and they're like goldfish. You put yeah. them in those catacombs, it's you terrible. chain them. They don't grow. They don't grow. They're growing only to the size of the room. Awful. It's brutal. And for Tyrion, in this moment, teaming up means potentially becoming <laughs> a chunk of roast meat yeah. in the belly of two dragons. But you have to take risks. You have to take risks in life. So what if we unchained them? What if we fed them and loved them? Could they be literally the most valuable weapons in the known world? When Tyrion goes down to those catacombs to unchain Rhaegal and Viserion, he gives us not only one of the most incredible scenes in the show to date, but also great, great insight into his own backstory. When I was a child, an uncle asked what gift I wanted for my name day. I begged him for one of you. It wouldn't even have to be a big dragon, I told him. It could be little, like me. Everyone laughed like it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. Then my father told me the last dragon had died a century ago. I cried myself to sleep that night. This is an incredible, really revealing, illuminating moment. Perhaps the source of some crucial intelligence regarding one of the great A Song of Ice and Fire theories. <laughs> the possibility that Tyrion is not, in fact, Tywin Lannister's son, but rather the Mad Kings. You heard us right, people. What? So Jason, Maester. Yeah, let's go. Please assemble the conclave, head to the Citadel, teach us everything we need to know about the possibility that Tyrion is really Ares's kid, and thus Danny's brother, and thus a Targaryen, and thus Blood of the Dragon. Is Tyrion the son of the Mad King? What? Parentheses, yes. Here's the thing about this theory, which I, for a long, long, long time, did not agree with. Uh, I now agree with it. Yeah, you're, I, you're a late convert I'm here. a late yeah. convert, and I'll tell you why. Because to me, especially when I first started reading the story, so much of it was about um, people who were rejecting the roles that they were born into trying to find a place in the world where they could rise to their talents, not just into this caste that has been forced upon them by their family name, et cetera, et cetera, the way they look. And that's the way I processed the story for a long time. And then it turns out, guess what? Everybody's a Targaryen. John's a Targaryen. <laughs> maybe Tyrion is. Yeah. Right. Um, and also I'm a person that kind of resists like over overt theorizing. I like to go by the text. And I just think it's kind of undeniable at this point. So let's get into it. Ares II, Targaryen, soon to be called the Mad, ascended to the Iron Throne in 262 AC at the age of 18. Brimming with ambition and that trademark Targaryen eccentricity, his goal was to be the greatest king the realm had ever seen. He said that numerous times. I want to be the greatest king the realm has ever seen. To that end, he sought to imbue his administration with energy, vigor, um, youth. And so among his first moves- Fire? Was, fire, fire you burn them all. Among his first moves was to clear out the ossified holdovers, some of whom had been serving since the days of Aegon the Unlikely, uh, in favor of men from his own generation. One of these, the most important of these, really, was a 20-year-old 
lord of Casterly Rock named Tywin Lannister. Now, perhaps it was the genocidal destruction of House Reigns and Tarbex just a year earlier that brought the young lion to the king's attention. Whatever the case, it was an inspired decision. And many would say, and I would count myself among them, that it was his best decision. Lord Tywin was the youngest hand in the history of the realm. And after that bright start, things went downhill first steadily and then with great speed. Meanwhile, as his... Uh, administration was slowly descending into chaos. King Ares, who was already displaying the, the flights of capriciousness and casual cruelty, would soon curl into full-blown insanity. He was having a tough time domestically, not just in trying to run the realm. His sister-wife, Rayla, gave birth to Crown Prince Rhaegar in 259 AC, three years before he was risen to the throne. That's a great start. But the intervening years brought the royal couple only disappointment and pain. The queen brought many children into the world after Rhaegar, but they were all stillborn, stunted, or deformed. There were a pair of miscarriages, then a stillborn daughter, then a boy, Daron, who lived less than a year, then another stillborn child, and another miscarriage, and another prince, and this one named Aegon, born prematurely, died before his name day. Later, their union would produce Danny and Viserys. So all the while, as this was going on, King Ares was wallowing in one of the great Targaryen pastimes, which is being a super blood of the dragon fuckboy and just <laughs> nailing everything that comes across his path. He was famed for his habit of fucking his wife's ladies-in-waiting, and Queen Rhaelia was known to have complained that the king was, quote, turning my ladies into whores. Now, one of the queen's ladies, a young nobleman of the Westerlands, cousin to Tywin Lannister, by the name of Joanna Lannister. Hmm, ha, huh, ooh. Rumors that Joanna gave up her maidenhead, a.k.a. virginity, to King Ares were whispered around King's Landing at this time. Now, one year after being named Hand, Tywin wed Joanna, his cousin. Jamie and Cersei, don't feel so bad about your relationship. <laughs> uh, in King's Landing, Lord Tywin loved Joanna deeply with a tenderness that surprised many who knew him. And shortly after, Queen Rayla dismissed Joanna from her service. Why? A rumor and a reliable one flying around the capital at the time was that King Ares had taken certain, quote, liberties with Lady Joanna during the traditional betting ceremony uh, of the wedding. Now, bettings are traditionally raucous affairs. They involve a lot of tearing off of clothes, tearing off of the underwear. Light feel copping is not unheard of and is generally like, OK, these things are par for the course. So assuming the story is true, I think it is, it is. The fact that Ares' actions were notable enough to spark rumors are in and of themselves interesting. So whatever the case, soon after that, Joanna left King's Landing and rarely, rarely, rarely returned for the rest of her life. Now, in 266, Joanna gives birth to the twins, Cersei and Jaime. In those years, a schism had begun to develop between the king and his hand. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but one of them is perhaps... Jealousy. Ares had become aware that many in the realm took it as gospel that Tywin Lannister was the guy who really ran the realm, which was true. And this greatly enraged the king. He was known on several occasions to have said something to the effect of wanting to put Tywin, quote, back in his place. So in 272, the king holds a tournament at King's Landing to celebrate his 10th anniversary as sovereign of the realm. Joanna travels from Casterly with the twins in order to introduce them for the first time to their king. Ares was super drunk made a bunch of lewd remarks in front of the gathered lords and ladies of the realm about Joanna's breasts. Uh, something about them being saggier now that uh, she had two children. Um, <laughs> or something to the effect of, I wonder if they're saggy now because you've had two children. That was what the king said in front of everyone. Tywin, of course, was pissed and he tried to resign, but the king would not allow it. Now, from then on, Ares seemed to take greater and greater pleasure in undermining the work of his hand. So, same year, 272, after the tournament, so sometime less than a year and longer than perhaps nine months, Joanna Lannister gives birth to Tyrion Lannister and dies. He is described, Tyrion, in contemporaneous accounts as having had a large malformed head, stunted legs, and short arms. Much stranger accounts say that he had a tail which Lord Tywin ordered cut off. I don't believe that at all, by the way. So here's what we know. After Rhaegar... For a extended period of time, over a decade, Ares and Rayla had numerous trouble pregnancies resulting in stillbirths, premature births, and deformed children. Later, their union would produce Danny and Viserys, but this was 
something like 17 or 18 years later. Remember that moment between Cersei and Tyrion seasons ago where they're discussing Joffrey being a vicious monster? And Cersei's like, what's that old saying? Every time a Targaryen is born, the gods flip a coin, something like that. Danny does exhibit... At times. Touch of the madness. Touch of the madness. She really likes to burn people, doesn't she? <laughs> she may she may not admit it, but when the fire starts, the look that comes over her face is pure ecstasy. Two, Ares was a womanizer and was rumored to have had a thing for Joanna and to have made several super aggressive passes at her. Three, after she visited King's Landing for the Mad King's 10th anniversary celebration, Joanna gave birth to Tyrion. And crucially, lastly... Viserion and Rhaegal did not roast Tyrion when he went down there and to take off their, their collars. They seem to be fine with his presence. I think when you take the totality of that, you have to conclude Tyrion's a Targaryen. Does that mean he's going to be a dragon rider? I think he might be. The dragon has three heads after all. It does indeed. The other thing of note here, of course, that is too rich to just hand wave is why include approximately and just this is i want to be honest this is just a rough count yeah i don't have the exact tally four million instances of right. tywin saying some version of right. either you, you are, are my you son are, right. or you're not my son calling that connection yes into question or into our putting right. it in front of us to consider and think about and of course the one moment where Tyrion finally says you know oh i am your son right is in the moment of acknowledging his own, the depths of his own viciousness, yes, really. And it's not, you know, there's nothing paternal or familial or tender about it. It's the greatest insult yes. he could possibly dish out. 100%. Good stuff, man. I'm into it. I'm into it. I believe it. I'm a firm believer now. Mal. Yeah. They were all so happy. Mm. And so were we. Once. Let's find that happiness again. Let's head to the Sept right now to bathe in the light of the Seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, Lightning Round Style. Resurrection. What goes on with resurrection? How many ways can you resurrect people? Okay, here's the different ways. There is the science way, which is Kyburn. Uh, He does something which we're not really sure what it is, but it seems to sap the agency of the person who who the experiment is done to. There are the Whites, raised by the White Walkers, by their ice magic, and obviously they have no agency of their own. And then there is R'hllor. Now, we know from Beric Dondarrion that something of his personality fades each time he's brought back, but this is, or appears to be certainly, that we know of, the best method of bringing people back which preserves something of their original personality and character. Atta girl, Mel. Number two, some really interesting brand stuff in this episode, obviously. And one thing, one thing that kind of slides by in the moment, yeah. but is worth picking at a little more, is what Bran says to the Three-Eyed Raven when they return, when they're pulled out of the Winterfell vision. He says, you finally show me something I care about, and then you drag me away. Begs the question, what had the Three-Eyed Raven been showing him before that? What were they looking at, if not things from Bran's life, the people in his world? And then there's also this really gut-wrenching moment when Bran says to Hodor, what happened? So again, when they're back in the cave and Hodor says, sadly, very sadly, there's clear emotion and understanding in his response and the way he says, Hodor, really agonizing. And one of the things that struck us rewatching this episode is how just once again, you're sort of forced to acknowledge and grapple with how secretive the Starks really are. Like, okay, there's the John stuff. Obviously, there's the way Ned handled that and the, the question of John's parentage, not telling not telling John that at any point while Ned was still alive to do so. But no one told Bran that Hodor could talk once, right. that he was a boy named Willis, that he had a life and a history and a backstory. Ned and his generations of Starks kept things so close to the vest. And we're going to we're going to see this theme pop up throughout the course of the season, but that is a really that's a moment where you feel it in a right. in a kind of damning and unpleasant way. Totally. I really thought about this moment because I was thinking when you analyze stories this deeply 
and you find something like this, you're thinking, was that a mistake? Right. But it feels too intentional of a piece with the characters of the Starks. Like, it really is notable. No one told Bran that Hodor, no one even mentioned it, that Hodor at once was a normal boy. I think it really speaks to the way the Starks have operated and the way they deal with shame, in, in fact, just to cast aside the fact that stuff happened and just to ice wall it off and never right. to speak of it again. Bury it in the crypt. That's it. Literally, literally or figuratively. Number three, after witnessing the way 1-1 uh, splintered Castle Black's gate and then popped a sworn brother <laughs> like a water balloon, we must stop to appreciate that Gren and five men held the gate. Incredible. They held the gate. They held it. They held it. Held that gate. Number four, weird one here. Brienne is telling Sansa about seeing Arya. She says that Arya was with a man. <laughs> I don't think he hurt her. She didn't want to leave him. He didn't want to leave her. She knows this is the Hound. Right. Pod certainly knows it's the Hound. That means Brienne would know. First of all, he's one of the most physically recognizable people in the <laughs> yes. realm. They had a pretty intimate interaction there. It's not like Pod and Brienne wouldn't have debriefed after why is Bran not revealing his identity to Sansa in this moment? Sansa and the Hound obviously have a lot of history. It would have been fascinating to see how she responded to this. And then also in that exchange, there's a, just a low-key, quiet, but very sweet moment when Sansa asks about Arya. How did she look, right. she says. And Bran says, she looked good. She wasn't exactly dressed like a lady. And Sansa says, no. She wouldn't be. And she smiles to herself with what at the time appears to be genuine affection. And it's just made me really look forward to their hopeful season seven reunion. I love the tightening, ever tightening circles of the story as it comes to a close. Number five, uh, Bran talking about what he saw in his visions. He says, my Aunt Liana, I've seen her statue in the crypts. My father never talked about her. Oh, really? There you go. There's the stark secrecy again, setting up the Tower of Joy next episode. Number six, when Tyrion says... He's talking to the dragons and he says, it could be little, like me. It is such a sweet and tender and beautiful moment. We've talked about this theme and this idea a lot about cripples, bastards, and broken things, the idea that even the smallest person can make a difference in the world. And to hear Tyrion sort of acknowledge that to himself and to know that he had been telling himself that when he was a little boy, the kind of little boy who Lewin would have said to Bran, you know, who doesn't want to grow up and, and be special— that was really beautiful to hear. And it's really reminiscent of a extremely beautiful and emotional line from the books where in, in book one, A Game of Thrones, Tyrion and John, much like in the show, have a meeting, you know, a chat in the Winterfell courtyard when everyone else is at the feast. And the chapter ends thusly, Tyrion saying, remember this boy, all dwarves may be bastards, yet not all bastards need be dwarfs. And with that, he turned and sauntered back into the feast, whistling a tune. I'm going to cry. Oh, my God. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> it just really gets me. When he opened the door. <laughs> Fuck. When he opened the door, the light from within <laughs> threw his shadow clear across the yard. And for just a moment, Tyrion Lannister stood tall as a king. It's so good. Crying. <laughs> It's so beautiful. Like, isn't that why we read stories yes. like this for moments like that? 100%. Also, I have a cold, so that's not helping. <laughs> Mallory has a uh, light to moderate grayscale. So, <laughs> number seven, another touching moment. Tommen and Jamie are in the sept and they're talking about who killed Tristane Martell, Prince of Dorne. Tommen says, sadly, I expect it was mother. And Jamie, not really believing what he's saying, by the way, goes, uh, Your mother wouldn't do that. Yes, she would, Tommen says. So matter of fact. So matter. He knows exactly Brutal. the people who are his family. Tommen he knows was, what they are. Tommen was too good for this world. He really was. All right. Well, you might not think you have the gift, but have you ever tried podcasting? Nah, give it, I'll give it a try. <laughs> Thankfully, Davos convinced Melisandre to give the old resurrection bit a crack. And we are here to award the fruits of that fiery, oily labor. So each episode, we are honoring the person who played the game and advanced his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week's winner didn't have a ton to do with it, some would argue, but it doesn't matter because there's a general rule here at Binge Mode, albeit not one that we applied to Barrick back in season three, but we're, we're right. applying it now. If you come back to life, you win. Thusly, the winner 
of this episode's champion's purse is... Jon Snow, reborn anew. Prince that was promised, perhaps? Who knows? I think so. That's it. We don't have a lot to add. A lot more on John next episode. All he did was breathe, but that was enough. Good enough. Obviously, like a little assist here from Mel, from Davos, from Ghost, from Ed, from all the supporters. But uh, Tormund, this was really, this is a, this is. This is a huge moment. It's hard to overstate what this means for John's myth, his hero's journey, his character arc, where this puts him not only in the context and confines of the story that we are now watching and reading, but in the myth and lore of this world. This is massive. All right, guys, we drink and we know things, and we hope that you know as much as we do now and that you had as much fun as we did today. We also hope that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing Season 6, Episode 3, Oathbreaker, also known as the one where I lost my fucking mind when we went to the Tower of Joy, finally. Until then, just swear us this one thing. Okay. Next time we have an idea like binge mode, punch us in the face. That's a good idea. Ramsey, you want to murder the Lord Commander at the wedding? How dare you? That's over the line. I would never do that. What? No. What else would you like to do? Betray your your liege lord? No. That's too far, Ramsey. Put that knife away. <laughs>